HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Café Patachou, a student union for adults since 1989 in the heart of Indianapolis. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Black culture through the complicated lens of agriculture. We speak to Carla Hall about her uncompromising soul food recipes. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture. We also hear from Gabriela Rodriguez at Harlem Grown's Youth Farm Uptown. About empowerment and, you know, community resilience building through this work. Um, Food is kind of just a vehicle. Leah Penniman addresses feeling like an outsider in the farming community. I could count on my two hands the number of of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm -hmm. And so I literally go around little slips of paper and and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, February 27, 2019. This is the 206th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is the national food correspondent for a major newspaper, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to practice your interviewing skills. But what does it take to be a good interviewer? Well, to start, do your research, be a good listener, and bypass any judgment. Ask thoughtful and clear questions and have the right mix of intelligence with common sense and genuine interest in the subject. Also, it's key to have a good voice, tone, pace, and pitch. Those who are great at interviewing make it look easy, and we can learn from them and get better. So aim to be the best interviewer you can be. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest on the show. She is calling in from Atlanta. It is Kim Severson, the national food correspondent for the New York Times. Kim was the was formerly the Southern Bureau Chief for the Times National Desk. She reports on food news, contributes to NYT Cooking, and was a part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2018 for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. She's been on the staff since 2004 and previously worked for the San Francisco Chronicle and the Anchorage Daily News in Alaska, and she's won many accolades, including four James Beard Awards, and she's written four books. So welcome to the show, Kim. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm busy. We're in a busy time, my friend. It is busy. Is it ever not busy? <laughs> That's a good point. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. Although, um, you know, I think we're in this time where we're getting 
uh, everything's speeded up because we live in the future digitally, mm-hmm. and we're in a really uh, uh, divisive time politically. And I think the food world is, you know, we're a much more food literate culture than we've ever been. So if you're in the food writing game and the news game, it's it feels like this is uh, particularly accelerated. Um, and I've been, I've been, I feel like I'm your old auntie. I've been writing about food for a long time, kids, and uh, it's a it's a unique time, I'd say. Yeah, no, I agree with all that, and I feel I've been in the game a long time too, and seen the changes, and certainly with the internet and social media, things happen and news comes out so quickly, and um, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, so I, I agree. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginnings, or where did you grow up, and did you always want to be a food writer or a writer? Uh, where did I go? So my dad was a, kind of a mid-level um, auto industry executive, so we moved around a lot. Uh, as kids, we, were, we always were getting transferred, and this was like in the 70s and 80s when, you know, um, they would move, you know, people around, and so I lived, as a kid, lived in... Houston and Detroit and LA and um, but my parents are Midwesterners. My mom grew up on a dairy farm in northern Wisconsin, and my dad was from Wisconsin as well. Uh, and I went to high school and college in Michigan, some kind of Midwesterny. And I, you know, I got my start writing about. I was just a uh, uh, like a, one of the post Watergate babies, and we all kind of ran off to journalism school and thought we were going to change the world and didn't really work out that well, but at the time, we were very hopeful. Um, you know, went to journalism school, and uh, in high school, I got on my, I had a weekly high school newspaper, and I was, like, just a complete journalism nerd. You know, I went to journalism camp and in high school, which is, like, really one of the nerdiest things you can do, and so I was just into it, and um, this was kind of back when there were a lot of smaller newspapers, and you'd sort of jump from small circulation to a little bigger circulation, and you know, there were regional papers all over that you could write for, and I started writing for, um, you know, I had a, spent a couple years in the Suburban Bureau with the Portland Oregonian, just blowing the lid off the Lake Oswego School Board, you know, and then I was at the Tacoma News Tribune and Anchorage, and so I w- always was interested in uh, news, um, And but I, I, you know, I worked my way through college and restaurants, and um uh, was the assistant manager of a Little Caesars Pizza, which I'm very proud of. Uh, and, uh, very you know, cool. I had, to, <laughs> I had to work my way through college. So I did, you know, short order cooking and waited tables and did the Little Caesars thing. And um, so I, and I always loved food. And, you know, I've, like so many people, I had a mom, you know, the dinner table was where we had a big family and we were always around the dinner table. And to get my mom's attention, you had to pretty much kind of figure out how to be in the kitchen. So, you know, it was my thing, and uh, I always wanted to write about food, and I remember in Alaska, I moved to Alaska, and I was like a entertainment editor and social service reporter and all these things, uh, but they had a restaurant, the restaurant critic left, and um, or was just sort of part-time, and I didn't think it was doing a very good job, and so I told them I wanted to review restaurants kind of on the side, and I my big joke is always being the restaurant critic in Anchorage was like being the best ballerina in Lubbock, Texas, you know, but, <laughs> but there I was, um, I actually said that in a speech once and, uh, <laughs> afterwards a woman came up and said, you know, I was the prima ballerina in the, for the Lubbock ballet and I, oh my God, I felt terrible. Uh, but it, it, it was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So anyway, I, um, so I started writing about food some up there and I can remember thinking, gosh, one day if I could like write for gourmet, if I could like you know, um, write for one of the national magazines. And I just couldn't imagine how I was going to get there from where I was. Um, you know, it seemed impossible. Although I wrote some kind of really cool food stories in Alaska. You know, the, the crab fisheries there are crazy interesting. And I wrote about a cook who um, followed the Iditarod racers around and would cook for, you know, how you would, like, deal with cooking when you're that cold and for so long on the trail and she would keep, you know, the garlic in her pockets of her parka so it wouldn't freeze and saw steaks by tucking them inside her, you know, inside her jacket when they were on the trail. It was really interesting. So there were interesting stories to write. So I was all about that. Um, 
did you want me to make this tedious or extra tedious? Because I could go on. I mean, um, well, I mean, it's a forty-five minute show, so <laughs> I, I okay. mean, I love hearing it, and I, now I want to look up those stories. Right. <laughs> um, but um, tell me, how did you? What led you to the New York Times? So I kind of had a big break into food writing in '99. I'm telling you, I'm just so old. But the um, San Francisco Chronicle was looking to. Um, write more about food from a news perspective. And this was a little bit pre-Michael Pollan. And, like, right when the government had declared um, obesity, childhood obesity, an epidemic. And so the Chronicle was looking to, um, and this was Michael Bauer, who's the critic who left them, but was the executive food editor, and uh, wanted to try to get food onto the front page and kind of saw that food was really becoming cultural currency in a way that it hadn't been and wanted somebody with some news chops and some food experience. And just through one of those lucky breaks and someone I knew, and I went and tried out, and they hired me to do that job. So that was really when I started writing about food and food news with um, some serious intent to make that um, my career. And it was a great place to do it uh, in San Francisco at that time. And so I did that for about six years, and then... Uh, let's see, I was on a panel with Johnny Apple in, I think, Michigan, and uh, was, you know, for some reason he took notice of me, and we had lunch, and and then I was on another panel with Sam Sipton, who was the food editor then, and just kind of through interacting with those guys a little bit, uh, they a job came open, and um, Sam Sipton called me back in 2004, sent me an email saying, we want to give me a call, and so I didn't want to leave the Bay Area because I loved it, but, you know, for me it was like um, writing for the New York Times felt like going to play for the Yankees, you know. So I moved to New York and started doing doing uh, doing what I do. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So how did your role change from 2004 to today? And, and then what led you down to Atlanta? I'm not sure. Well, I, you know, the when I first started there, I think the, like – you know, the, how the New York Times approaches food journalism is changes every couple of years, it seems like, and there's a, lots of ups and downs and different perspectives. And I think what readers expect from us uh, has changed since a lot since 2004 and the pace of food news. There's a lot more people doing food news and food journalism now than before, um, at least in new forms online, maybe not as many traditional uh, newspaper food sections, but so, you know, um, I think things are, uh, I have noticed uh, there's a lot less kind of just good old-fashioned food beat reporting like there were when there were a lot more reporters at, you know, the Kansas City Star used to have a really, you know, vibrant food journalism. Minneapolis still does, but, you know, there were um, there were just a lot more um, people writing for their print food sections um, that morphed into online food sections, but just more old-fashioned newspaper journalism happening around food writing. And I uh, um, I sort of miss that a little bit, although I do welcome the many varied ways in which the food and restaurant community is covered now because it's just super vibrant, very different than when than it was in 2004, which is great. You know, Eater didn't exist then. And um, I don't. I think blogging transformed into a new kind of online journalism through that period, which you know, back if people remember when Serious Eats started. Or I remember I was originally, I was one of the original followers of the um, Julie Powell's blog back in the day, and we thought we thought that was really a revolution. You know, that you could check in every day with this person's adventure in the kitchen. So it's changed uh, tremendously. What I do hasn't sort of hasn't changed. I mean. You know, I sort of look for what I think is interesting going on in the food world. Um, I, uh, you know, try to try to write things for a New York Times audience that um, seems relevant and matters. I uh, and and sometimes it's the stuff you have to do because Thanksgiving happens every year, and how can mm-hmm. we cover that differently, or what does it mean this year? You know, it's our great collective meal and. The challenge for every food writer is how do we make that interesting and like helpful to people who want to just cook Thanksgiving dinner, but also um, taking a moment to kind of reflect on this communal meal that we're all sharing and what that means. I think that now, especially, I feel like that's really important. 
um, those kinds of things. Sometimes they're more investigative work. I used to write a lot about childhood obesity, and I used to write a lot more about the nutrition guidelines and how we're eating and sciencey stuff. Now I do a lot more kind of cultural pieces and uh, found lately a lot more hard news. Um, you know, I took a break for four years and wrote for the National Desk and came down here to Atlanta to take over the Southern Bureau. I was a little burned out on food, and um, uh, an editor said, you know, the Atlanta Bureau's open. You want to go back and do news? I'd written some Sarah Palin stories and done some some reporting kind of um, before that, so I think they thought maybe I would enjoy or maybe they needed somebody in Atlanta. But it seemed interesting, the South, the American mm-hmm. South, and uh, – I was, you know, so I had a study, I covered the John Edwards trial and hurricanes and shootings and politics and all the things that you do when you're a national correspondent. And, uh, you know, that's a really hard and busy life. You know, you have to always have a bag packed and you end up in weird little nooks and crannies of the world. And often when people are going through some of the worst times of their lives and um, it's, it's, that was a, that was a challenging job. So then... About four years ago, we launched NYT Cooking, and we really doubled down on our food coverage. And uh, Sam Sifton had been the national editor for a while, and he was back being the food editor. And he said, hey, you want to come back and write about food? And by that time, I was kind of ensconced here. I've got a kid. And you know, I always joked with people when I moved to Atlanta from New York, I, I immediately felt skinny and rich, you know. So <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, I have this kitchen, and I can, you know. Um, and they wanted they wanted uh, more coverage from around the country, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, I know how to do that. I can, uh, and so my job is really to kind of travel around and see how different people are eating, and uh, also, like I said, finding myself covering more hard news, food news now than I used to, and yeah, so that's it. And now here I am talking to you. So there's the whole story for your listeners. <laughs> you you summarized everything very well. I mean, I'm sure you could, you could go into more details. uh, But no, that's I and no, that's, that's wonderful. How do you how do you work with Julia Moskin? Oh, my work wife. (laughs) Um, You know, Julia, when I first came to New York, I was just a complete idiot about the city. And I didn't, you know, I'd visited a lot. But I was like, what is like, why? How am I supposed to keep walking fast in the subway? Am I not supposed to let people go in front? Like what, you know, she would say things like, now when you get out of a cab, never get out on the street side because you don't, you always get, you know, or she'd be like, oh, here's, this is where you need to go to get, to get this uh, food. And I was just sort of stunned coming from San Francisco. I thought the salads in New York are terrible and the food, like I didn't understand the cultural importance of a lot of food in New York. And Julia is a lifelong New Yorker who is, kind of lived her whole life in basically four square blocks. And uh, so she um, took me under her wing in that way. And Julia had never, she was, she was not really a news journalist in as, as much as she was more of a, a cook, a writer about food and cooking and restaurants. And so we sort of made a good pair right away. We were just, um, you know, I could, uh, I, I, you know, I think we just, I think our, our skill set complemented each other, but mostly we just sat next to each other. And you know how you have, you know how important a work wife or husband is, right? So, right. you know, if you are having a bad day, they kind of help you out. They know how you like your coffee, your, you know, in the afternoon, if you need to go out for a break, they're like, let's go make a food run here. Or, And we were both crazy in love with food, so it was, it was perfect. So we, um, you know, uh, just end up like like we know each other's strengths and weaknesses, you know, and back each other up on things. And I think the first we, um, I don't know how we had this idea to write this book. We wrote a cookbook together, and we will sometimes, especially, you know, all of the Me Too stories we did and covering a lot of what the fallout of that, we've been really have to tag team about it. And, you know, those stories are... Um, they're really emotional to write, and you have to listen a lot, listen to a lot of people and a lot of people's stories. And sometimes you're the first person outside of a circle of friends or a therapist that someone is telling their story about sexually harassed, getting sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. And um, lately, we, you know, we 
spent many, 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 many hours listening to women's stories and also trying to, you know, press people who were accused of these things. And it's just, it was very um, emotionally challenging for us. And I think it was great to have someone who we knew and trusted so well. So after a certain interview, we could just call and go, oh, my God, I just, this story I have to tell you. And, you know, just good to have somebody who, to work with who, you trust 100%, you know, and you can be your authentic self with because at least in our business, you know, sometimes it's great and we're just writing about uh, recipes or a chef or the way people are cooking and celebration and all the great things that come with food. And sometimes you're writing about things that are not so pleasant. And it's just really nice to have someone like her around. I think we, you know, we know each other well enough. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to call blah, blah, blah. And you work on the second paragraph. I'm going to write the last third of it. Okay, do you have that quote yet? Um, let's go do a write-through. I'll send it back to you and take some notes on it. And we just sort of send stories back and forth a lot in that way and build them. And then, um, you know, when our editor edits them, then we call up and go, I can't believe he, what? what? Hmm. We complain about our editor behind his back, and then we send the story back. And, you know, it's just a, it's a relationship. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's so important. I think it's, it makes, I think that's, you know, having that and it shows in your writing and your work together. And I know you've also done some lighter things or I'm thinking of your, I don't know if it's called Cookie Wars, but. (laughs) Oh, right. We did. So that's the other fun part. Like it would be great if we could just do that all because there's nothing more fun than just giving each other shit together yeah. Uh, for a food video or in a radio thing, and it's we do play off each other pretty well. She's pretty funny about that stuff, and uh, I totally got robbed on that cookie thing. By the way, <laughs> I think it was a setup by the producers in the way that you know the Bachelor. There's already the end's already been decided, even though it seems like that's not true. I believe that's what happened to me All right. in that competition. Do okay. you have a work wife or work husband? Do yourself? I? I don't. Yeah. I'm. I'm. You're single. I'm. Probably the most solo person of solo people. I just, I'm very independent. Uh, uh, but but when you're talking about that, I'm like, that sounds really nice. Like, I wish I had one. <laughs> but maybe in the future. Um, but yeah, I do. I'm pretty, I'm pretty on my own. Even like with this show, like some shows have, have co-hosts and, yeah. and two people. But I'm always like, well, my guest is my co-host. So, um, but yeah, no, your relationship sounds awesome yeah really awesome and I know it is so yeah it's you know it's important to have people that you um that you care about for sure that you can work with yeah okay so let's take a little break here and we're going to come back and we're going to talk more with Kim so stay with us this is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network This episode is brought to you by Café Patachou. Long described as a student union for adults, Café Patachou is an award-winning café serving world-class breakfast and lunch in the heart of Indianapolis. Created by Martha Hoover, Café Patachou began as a mission to open a restaurant that used the best local ingredients prepared expertly. What Martha would cook for her own family was exactly what she wanted for her restaurant guests. Café Patachou has since grown into a restaurant group and the Patashu Foundation. And while Martha is no longer in the kitchen whisking three eggs per omelet anymore, she is still spreading her passion for premium local ingredients, now in several concepts and locations. Learn more at patashuinc.com. That's P-A-T-A-C-H-O-U.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Kim Severson. She's the national food correspondent for the New York Times. And during the break, I was just thinking, I know I said I'm the most solo of solo, but I definitely do have colleagues I can call for advice and, and support. So I'm not, I'm not that lonely. But, um, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't have someone sitting next to me. Uh, so let's talk a little about food conferences, because I've been fortunate. I travel a lot to conferences, and I run into you at all 
parts of the world. I last we saw each other was in in Copenhagen, the Mad oh, Conference. That's right. That's right. That was the last place we saw each other. Do we just sound like totally like? Oh, that's right. We just saw each other in Copenhagen. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I so know. Funny. Well, but it's but, but I, it's true. It's part, but it is part of the job. The the especially. I mean, I was there participating and and being a. I was. I, I didn't have obligations to to moderate a panel, which I always find you to be such an excellent moderator in any discussion I've ever heard you lead. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and you had a, you had a serious to be, topic too. Uh, yeah, I you know um, I like to do. I love moderating um, panels and being um, you know interviewing people on stage because it is uh, it's kind of you get immediate feedback from the audience for doing what I normally do, which is interview people all day or talk to people and um, kind of engage in discussions. And so when you're doing it on stage like that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you're with, you're almost like having immediate interaction with readers. You know, usually I write a story and you never know how it's going to be received until people start screaming about you online. That's always fun. But, um, <laughs> but sure. like, I'm like, wow. Okay. Um, but there it's really interactive and it's fascinating to hear the questions people have. And you're kind of trying to like, sort of herd cats on stage and make sure that it, it's, inter- like I've sat in so many conferences with pe- terrible panels and people are just kind of droning on and nobody's stopping them. And, you know, you always feel bad for the one person on the panel who never gets a word in edgewise and there's the mansplaining and, you know, um, you know, just, uh, so I always, I feel obligated to try to really make that interactive for the audience because I have been bored so much in them. Um, the problem is, of course, I have this other job, but the Times is really, you know, Sam, who's my boss, is really interested in having us do journalism in lots of different forms now. So maybe, you know, one's Twitter feed be, could be considered a form of journalism. You know, Julia has a Instagram feed she spends a lot of time uh, with, and that can become a form of journalism for her. Um, and being on stage and, and talking to people in a panel um, then it's also a form of journalism, right? So you're being able to explore issues and kind of curate the discussion and um, maybe move things forward a little bit. So I'm, let's see, what? how many, I, I don't know how many I do when I can do it. Usually what I try to do is figure out a story somewhere near whatever panel I'm doing because I really think there's food stories everywhere, every city. So sometimes I'll try to piggyback some reporting along with, um, the panel or the conference. And also, you know, you never know. It's so interesting to just listen and talk to people because you never know where a good story idea is going to come, right? So, you know, you and I may have a conversation standing out in the cold in Copenhagen and it could spark an idea. So, although, what did you like the Copenhagen thing? I felt like, I I, I don't know, I, I, I love, um, uh, I love all the, people there and the thinking that goes into it but I felt completely like I don't I don't live this life this is you know I felt kind of like an outsider there yeah it was my first time going to that conference and it was it was special and I feel it was unique and I feel the relationships of the people that it, were there because it was in Copenhagen it was it was you know, brought in people from all around the world it was such an international mix um, I definitely enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. I felt, I don't know, the day, you know, not, I don't think every talk moved me, but definitely overall as a package, uh, I, I was, I was glad I was there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it was, it was just, and it was really well organized and it was, it was, it was cool to be a part of it. I'm, I'm going, and I, I know you're in the lineup because I saw you on the, on the agenda. I'm going next week to the Philly Chef Conference. Right. What I, that's with um, Drexel University, I think, right? Yes. Yes, I will be there. I'm going. I'm actually, Julia and I are in, in another work-wife uh, adventure. We're, we're going to teach a class, um, do a couple seminars at Princeton oh. a couple days before that, and then I'm coming to Philadelphia to do that. Um, I don't really know much about that conference. Do you? 
I don't either, but I am going on on Saturday. I'm going to be teaching a little class to the students at the university on PR, which oh okay is is exciting for me to be able to do that and participate. And then I will just be attending the the Sunday and Monday seminars. Uh, I've never been to this one, but the lineup of people involved looks terrific. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm curious about this, like, for um, from a public relations standpoint, um, are those conferences uh, are they good for business, or do you go for the ideas, or what's like if you're looking to promote a restaurant, right, or promote uh, somebody or something in the industry? How important are those conferences to you? I love it. You've turned them. You've turned it on to me. You've I'm become sorry. the interviewer. Well, for me, because well, as a publicist and also with my show, I feel I have multiple purposes now when I'm going to things. Okay. But I, I find it's about connections and relationships, and certainly seeing people in person. And as you said, you don't really know what conversations might come about. But I, I definitely find um, things come come from from being apart and talking with people. And usually people always ask me, who, who are you working with? Who are your clients? So right there off the bat, I'm talking about my clients and or someone tells me they're going to Washington, D.C. And I'm, I'm like, oh, I have a client. I work with Eric Bruner Yang in D.C. And so, you know, things come about it, but it, I kind of let it naturally unfold and I don't know what to expect at the same time. Okay. And who well, knows, I could pick up a client in Philly just from being there, right? Well, that's true. <laughs> Girls got to hustle. Not easy. <laughs> Definitely. So let me ask you, I have two questions from past episodes because we had a little rescheduling. And they're both great questions, so I'm going to ask you both of them. Okay. So first, from last episode 205, I had on Connie McDonald and Pam Weeks. Okay. They are the founders of LeVan Bakery, which is known for its world-famous cookies. And they want to know, what would you make for a small dinner party for a few of your closest friends? Like, what would your menu oh. be? You know, that is a... Um that is so situational because I think how I like to cook for my friends depends on where my friends are. So um, Bill Addison from Eater is a friend of mine, and we were both here in Atlanta. And when he would be in town, he would come over, and I would really just roast a great chicken for him, which I know is kind of a cliche thing, but he um, he's on the road and eats out so much, and so we would just... Do, I would just kind of do the homiest sort of a meal that I could do for him. So that's, you know. But then I have, um, you know, if I have friends from out of town or people I haven't seen for a while, and, uh, you know, my mother was Italian-American, and I spent a lot of time trying to get her red sauce right and her meatballs, and sometimes I think for me that just reminds me of, um, you know, it's every time I would go see my brothers or they would go see me, you know, or come see me, we always would put my mom, my mom's passed away a couple of years ago, but we'd put her spaghetti meatballs on. So I like to do that kind of real Italian sort of thing sometimes. Uh, and then if I have people who haven't been to Georgia before, if I can get a hold, especially in the summer, get a hold of some of those really good Gulf shrimp or some, you know, I'd like to, you know, okra depends on, like I like to show folks a little bit about what's, you know, kind of, surprise them a little bit about how kind of agrarian and specific and delicious the South can be. So sometimes I'll do that. Um, sometimes I like to just make really great hamburgers for people, you know. Um, there's something about a really good home style. I don't know. So anyway, I don't have really wish I had a definitive thing. I kind of like to think about how the person who's coming to dinner is feeling or where they might be in their life or somehow make it more than just a recipe, you know. So I guess that's what I, I you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's home cooking, but I think um, trying to be kind of agile with the emotional and, you know, kind of time of year and emotional state of my guest. And, right. you know, I like to make it a thing so they feel loved. I, I feel the love just with your explanation of that. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> All of those meals. 
Okay, so second question from episode 193. I had on... Andy Chabot. He is. Oh yeah, I love Andy. Yeah, from Blackberry Farm. He's a very wonderful and kind man. Mm -hmm. He really is. Uh, It was my first time meeting him, and I've been to Blackberry Farm once earlier this last year, which was fantastic. So, okay. Yeah, I did a big story there when um, Sam Beal died Mm. suddenly, and kind of wrote about how they were recovering there and um, kind of how they went through his death. And um, I met Andy then and it, yeah, he's a, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I haven't heard, I haven't talked to him in a long time. There you go. Yeah. And wow. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I can't, that, stories like that and the fact that you, you, you cover them, it's, it makes you who you are because I think that had to have been, I would imagine had to have been tough. Um, yeah. You just have to get out of the way of those stories because they're, yeah, yeah it's super, Anyway, but yeah. Okay, okay. So okay, the question. So what do want Andy want to know? <laughs> he wants to know, what would you like to see from menus right now? What's most exciting to you about the menus, whether it's the format, the verbiage, the descriptions? He was mm-hmm. saying he was recently at a symposium and there was a discussion about menus and some critique on them. So he wants to know what, what you think you, you know, uh-huh. you'd like to see. Well, I, you know, I've been around long enough to kind of see the demise of the appetizer entree dessert format, and then we kind of moved into the, um, you know, the small, small plate plates. period, and yeah. now we're in the, like, you get the large format thing, and, you know, it's been interesting. I, I'm, um, and also was, you know, around when Alice Waters was, when, you know, kind of where the original describing where, um, the farmer that brought you a thing, uh, which got out of hand as well. So, I mean, right now it's um, I. A lot of restaurants will just give me the like four things that are in that dish, like you know sorrel, pine nuts, lamb, you know, uh, you know Sichuan peppercorns, and then you're like, I have to, I can't, I don't even know how to think about what that dish is. So I'm a little annoyed by the sort of minimalist for things that, you know, like, I, anyways, I always have to make the waiter describe it. So I, I hope that kind of goes away and you actually get a little bit more of a description of the dish. Um, I don't also don't like the thing where you, now you're seeing you eat the small little bar snacks where just like, okay, so that's, I'll get six olives for four bucks or whatever, the little bar snacks, and then it fades into a little bit bigger dishes and a little, and the waiter has to explain that you're going to eat from the top down, and our second third is what might traditionally be considered an entree. And so I'm always, I feel like that's a lot of work to make us do, to divide up, like like I've got to, no, wait, where is the dividing line where you get the big format? Like what? So I, I would hope that um, menu writers could be a little bit more user-friendly and sort of, you know, describing the dishes. I also am really, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but where restaurants tell you in a way like as if this is the cool thing. So we just cook the dishes and they come out when they come out and like that's part of our thing. And I'm like, no, you could manage manage the kitchen a little and you're ordering a little better. Like I would really like these three things now and when I have time to eat them, then I could have these other four things. I don't want it to just be, you know, unless I'm at a bar or really kind of more casual place where you're just kind of snacking and it's fun. But that idea that somehow this is this thing that we're just at the whim of the kitchen and when they come up, you will get them. I find that sort of not consumer or customer friendly. I don't yeah. really enjoy that so much. You're like, this is like curmudgeon hour. Well, I'll tell you another thing that bothers me. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, um, so, and I am kind of into the large format thing in a way. I just, we, I just had a big old kind of a, sort of a peak, chicken sort of thing that was a big roasted chicken but had um, kind of done with scallions and some steam buns and it was really fun we all just dug into that and I think a lot of um, you know like to do hot pots and all those are sort of large format things in a way Um, so I really love the big communal things that we're having like this idea of like here's a big dish for you all to share I like that that's making me happy well, that's good. I think more and more restaurants I see are doing the the dishes are going to come out whenever we I want them to come out. Aggressive from the kitchen, <laughs> but it's I it, do. don't you? I find it's 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 a lot of places now. Uh, yeah, no, it's the thing. Yeah, that we just do this because we're cool and we just give <laughs> you stuff when we want, and you have to. 
I mean, if you, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind the option. They could go. Can we bring things out as they show up, or would you like me to? Like, I love what a waiter says. Would you like me to course this for you? And so they can kind of think about what dishes. They know how the kitchen works and how soon things will be coming out, and what might group together well. Like, I feel right. taken care of then when the waiter does that, or you know, yeah. and says that. But I find the, you know, um, I also think that there's a. I want a cloth napkin at a certain price point and not a big fancy one. And I also think it's probably environmentally. I mean, I know there's debate between paper versus washing, but I find that we are having a lot more paper napkins lately, and I'm not enjoying that. What's another thing that bothers? Just go on. And here's another thing. Restaurants need to check their restrooms in the middle of service and clean them up a little bit. I could go on forever. I'm like your cranky old aunt, your cranky old lesbian aunt. Here's another thing, you kids. So there you go. Well, maybe this advice will go to someone's ears and they'll they'll uh, they'll they'll take you up on it because it's all I I nothing you're saying I I don't agree with. I think it's great. Okay, so let's. Uh, my engineer stepped out for a sec, so let's go. I mean, the show's running. You know, all we're right. just we're just going. Well, we can do we're anything do, now. The engineer's gone. I know. I could go into the I booth. Love that. But but we're we're let's just go straight you could into start playing like. Old school, like entire size of LPs, like old college radio style. I mean, if only he knew. We'll see if he listens back to this. Okay, let's play my speed round, which actually Uh I think I played with you once a long time ago at the Menus of Change conference when you were like walking down the hallway. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I probably choked. I don't know how I did. I remember that. Oh, my gosh, that was a while ago. Well, this is going to be great. So we're we're going to play the game. Let me loosen up a little. Okay. Here we go. Okay, so I'm going to name a couple things and you pick your preference. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Ooh. I guess ultimately eat in. Oh, that's a tough one. All right. Wine, beer. I do like to eat out, but. Okay. You're, you're, um, we don't, no, no one's really going to hold you to this, but. Okay. But that's, that's well, Eden wins. I feel like I'm moment. on a restaurant show. I should say eat out, and I do enjoy eating out. But ultimately, <laughs> I kind of like to, I, I, like, I like eating at home. Okay. Okay. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Mocktail. 20 years of mocktails. And we have to quit calling them mocktails because it feels so belittling. We need to call them something better. I'm, I'm 100% with you, and... Yeah, I don't NAs. know. It's interesting. We'll call them NAs or something. I see different terms on menus now. You know, mm-hmm. the zero proof and things like that. Yeah, but zero proof is kind of nice. Yeah, I don't know. I still say mocktail here because at least you know what I'm saying. You, mm-hmm. everyone knows what what I'm talking about. Yep. Okay, tasting menu or a la carte. Uh, a la carte. Small plates or large plates. Oh, would like a a relaxed mix between the two. Um, uh, but I guess ultimately I'd be small plates because I like to taste a lot of different things. Okay. How about communal table or chef's counter? Oh, communal table probably. Chef's counter, I always feel like I have to like look at the chef and interact. And a lot of times if I'm there kind of for work, then it it's just awkward. I like watching them work, but I always feel like I'm so codependent. I'm like... I feel like I have to encourage them and pay attention. <laughs> and if I don't pay attention, then I feel bad. So it's too much pressure for me at the at the chef's counter. But a communal table, I could, you know, Make find people to shoot the shit with all day long. Cool. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Um, I think all-inclusive, especially if it's going to um, help health care and wages for the servers. I kind of distrust it a little bit, though. I don't trust restaurants, you know, on an all-inclusive. So sometimes I like to be able to make sure my server is getting the money that they need. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's a muddled answer. Okay. A few more. Cooking with or against Julia Moskin or <gasps> co-writing with her? So would I either cook with her or write with her? Yeah. Probably, oh, that's, probably that's a the good toughest question. Yeah. I think I'd say cook because writing is like our job, and so I'd rather be with her off, yeah. the, you know, because then it's like we're just doing it to cook with each other. So that's why cooking, but I sure do love writing with her. But I think it's, you know, it's yeah. like work. It's a good answer. Okay, writing or moderating, just yourself, which you prefer? 
Um, you know, right now, if I could just make a great living moderating panels, I enjoy it so much, I would do that. But um, I think I'm a good moderator because I do all the writing work and I am able to study all the issues. Um, but there's something really rich and fulfilling. I mean, that's like saying, would you rather just eat candy all than French fries all the time or <laughs> eat health more healthy? So I think the writing is like the more healthy, um, you know, the good, hard, sweat and work and um, that makes the moderation good. So I think if I just got to moderate all the time, I'd be like, ooh, I don't like this thing where I just eat the candy and the french fries. So I would, now I'm going to change my answer and go back to writing. <laughs> I talked myself there are out no, of it. No rules in this game. It's great. All right, thank you. Okay, two more. Cheese... Right, you're just my interviewer, not my shrink. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Atlanta? You know, I never would have said this before, but now that I don't live there, I might say Manhattan. I lived in Brooklyn. I worked in Manhattan. Now I live in Atlanta. I kind of, I have like kind of fallen back in love with Manhattan, not living there. Okay. I live in Manhattan, so I'll, I'll take it. Let's, 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 you know, let's bring Manhattan back. Yeah. Let's make Manhattan cool again. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. We can't afford you. to live there, but if we all huddle in one apartment, we could make it cool again. <laughs> Okay, so that's the game. That, that was, was a good awesome. one. That was a, such a good question about whether I would rather cook or write with Julie Moskin. That's great. I'm 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 so honored that you you think it's good. I mean, you're my <laughs> you're no because you're 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 Kim Seferson. I mean, like I, I we have to talk industry news, and I have to say, I talk in this part of the show. I don't know how many articles of yours we've talked about because you're always writing and talking what's about what's the most relevant things happening in the, in the industry. So um, I'm obviously a big fan. Today we're not talking about one of your articles, though. Yeah, thank you. But, you know, if anybody ever has an idea, Severson at nytimes.com or a tip or, you know, it's, just shoot me an email. I would love to, you know here if anybody if anybody has some yeah. bad stories are good i'm i'm always open so wow. please um if you let your listeners know that yeah absolutely i'm i'm glad you you gave out your email it's awesome okay so the article i have was in on bon appetit online and it's entitled my restaurant was the greatest show of excess you'd ever seen and it almost killed me when the chefs of Joe Beef in Montreal gave up alcohol, their whole restaurant changed. And this was by David McMillan of Joe Beef, and it was edited by Julia Kramer. And, you know, it's fitting for both of us to talk about because I don't, I don't drink alcohol anymore either. And I really, I related to his story. Uh, I feel it's a really important read. I've been to Joe Beef in Montreal, and it's an indulgent restaurant. And he talks about the his lifestyle of the eating and the drinking and e hosting everyone, and and it just kind of wore him out in the in the forties, and he was unhappy and ready for change. And I just I thought it was so well written, and um, I I just think everyone should read this piece. Oh, absolutely! It was such a beautiful touch he had telling that story and not self-indulgent, and he talked about sobriety, I think, in a really, um, you know, honest way, but it, it, I don't think it hit people over the head about that, but that whole idea of excess and the the thing that struck me is there was a point at which he said he felt bad because, you know, the guy from Chicago or whatever who traveled all that way expecting to have the big experience they heard or read about, and he couldn't give it to them in that way anymore. And he yeah. kind of felt bad, like he's not the, you know, ringmaster of the circus anymore. Um, and, you know, I've certainly talked to and written about a, a lot of, sh not a lot, but chefs who have uh, realized they had to stop the excess, whether it was, you know, the, um, you know, like the crazy obsession with spicy Popeye's fried chicken thighs and beer after the shift, like that lifestyle that does that, or, you know, full-on drug and alcohol lifestyle or just, you know, the drug of choice being more. And when you're in the hospitality business, more might also include like, 
Are you not amused? Have I not created this great place for you? And it's always a party, and I'm always giving, you know, and feeding you and making you happy, and I'm feeding off of the happiness I gave you, and I'm also drunk, and I'm also eating a ton, and it's that whole hunger for more, you know, that that idea to fill yourself up with more. And, And, you know, restaurants are, it's lovely to make people happy, right? And that can also be you know, a drug, but I, I just find that he articulated that whole thing so well. And, you know, people um, in the business, I think I think it's easier to say you're a sober chef these days. Um, I did a big piece on Sean Brock, who I think is about to have his, their, he and Adi's wife are about oh, to have yeah. a baby, which is yeah. often like any, like any day now. Yeah, uh, and watching him be, he was a similar sort of talent, different, but I think coming to terms with who am I if I'm not that big, tough, on the line, people are at my restaurant, celebrate with them person. And I've found that most people actually are just fine when they're not that big party person and they still cook great food and they actually probably taste their food better and they are actually better chefs. You know, um, it's an interesting thing because there's also that rest. Everybody knows that pressure to be in a restaurant every night, you know, cook every night, and the hours are crazy, and it's just not a well balanced lifestyle. So I don't know. You know, you have to keep open those hours to make money. Yeah. I, you know, there's a lot of things that go into this. But I thought that piece was really honest and well written, and not, you know, a lot of those kinds of stories are can be super self indulgent, I think. Um, and I thought that one wasn't. And Yeah, uh, I agree. I was moved by it. I posted it on Facebook. I wanted other people to read it. I just think it's it's a good yeah. read. Because um, it's more than just about putting down the bottle, you know? Yeah, no, it was, he talked about, I mean, taking care of himself, but he was also, I thought it was interesting. He talked about, um, he talked about the charity work and all the money they raise and, and for, for, he had this, Thing about raising money for salmon, but he didn't feel he had money for if someone in his team needs to go to therapy or take care of his staff. Like there was a whole, there was a whole point he was making about that, and um, I think he's people are now following his lead, and so I, I give I give him much credit. I give a lot of credit to Julia Kramer for for you know letting him write the piece, and uh, mm-hmm. so uh, we're and you know it's so interesting. I. Um... I always, you know, we have, cannot say enough for good editors in, in my yeah. business. And I'm sure that the, um, the you know, that you could tell the heart and soul of that story was there. I mean, you can't, you know, you right. even the best editor could not create the, the energy and the um, authenticity of that story. But I just, I'm sure that her deft touch really helped bring out, bring that out. So uh, just a shout out to the editors. Yeah, All absolutely. the editors in the house. Okay, so we're a little short on time. We're going to take one more break. Before we do, I just want to give a shout out. The James Beard Restaurant and Chef semifinalist for 2019, the awards, they were announced today. And, you know, interesting list, right? Super interesting. And selfishly, I'm just going to give I, I have. My clients are on this list. The I'm working with Eric Bruner Yang from Brothers and Sisters, and he's he was, uh, on the list for Best Chef Mid Atlantic, and Pichet Ong for Outstanding Pastry Chef, and uh, spoke and spoken he English. He judged our cookie contest. I know. So okay. I know. Congratulations Pichet, to him. Pichet's on the list and spoken English. Their restaurant, best new restaurant. Where and is spoken English? They're all at the Line Hotel in D.C., Washington okay. D.C. Okay. So I'm super. I'm super proud of them and excited. And the whole list. Yeah, we could. We could. Uh, we if we had a longer show we could evaluate the list. Right, well, but now you know it's this whole thing. The list is the first list is so ginormous. And, yeah, you know it's well there. It's always interesting. Yeah, March twenty seventh, the short list comes out, and then the awards are on May sixth. So we'll stay okay. tuned for that. Okay, so we're gonna take a very short break. Come back. I'll do my solo dining experience, and we'll have the final question. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. 
Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So here it is. This week, it's at Planta. The location, 850 Commerce Street, South Beach, Florida, which is down at the southern point of South Beach. So the concept, it's an innovative plant-based restaurant inspired by all parts of the world. The chef, David Lee. The owner, David Grutman. He is a Miami-based restaurant, nightlife, and hospitality entrepreneur who also operates Live at the Fountain Blue and is a partner at Komodo and OTL. So why did I go? Because it's a newer new spot, or it's new since I was last in Miami, and I heard it was good. So my experience. So I was down in South Beach for the South Beach Wine and Food Festival, and my coverage will be coming up on a future episode. But in between events, I decided I really needed to sit down at a restaurant and have have something substantial to eat because I was like grazing all day. So I went to Planta. I sat at the bar and I had a great experience. What did I get? I had their cold pressed juice first called First Base and it had pineapple, apple, turmeric, and lemon. And then I had a volcano roll, which is from their maki roll selection. And it had cucumber, avocado, baked quote unquote crab, and spicy mayo. My take. So the drink was perfectly refreshing, delicious, loved it. And the sushi was really nice. It hit the spot. So the the crab was actually hearts of palm as because as I said, this is a all vegetable restaurant. And it was it was good. It had a nice texture, uh, a little bit different. So the ambiance, it's spacious, light, airy, and it has a stylish bar and a little sushi counter as well. I'd say it's perfect for veggie eats. And it has more things on the menu beyond the vegetable sushi. sushi. It had a large menu. Interesting tidbit. So Planta opened with the purpose of the purpose of creating food that promotes environment sustainability. It started in Toronto, where there's a location, and it also has a Planta Burger outlet there. Personal fun fact, recently in New York, I went back to a place called Beyond Sushi, which is a chef-driven vegan sushi concept and has multiple locations, and I had one of their rolls, which was delicious, uh, another vegetable roll. So it's a little bit of a trend. The cost. At Planta, I spent $30. That's including tax, and they have an automatic 18% gratuity on the beach. Would I go back? Yes, I would. Their website is plantarestaurants.com. So there you have it. Uh, Kim, are you still there? I am. Cool. It's time for the final question. My next guest is Claudia Fleming. She is the co-owner and pastry chef at North Fork Table and Inn in Southold, North Fork, Long Island. I'm imagining at some point you probably wrote about Claudia or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would what would you like to ask her? Gosh, I could ask her anything, right? You can ask her anything. Right. Um, I would like to ask her what obligation she feels to bring up the next generation of cooks and thinkers and hospitality people and and what does she she how does she feel about being a kind of mentor advisor like what obligation do those of us who are um have been through a few years in life have to helping our young and fabulous millennial friends so how does she become how does she approach mentorship and that's what I would like to know from her. You thought it was going to be easy, like, if you could only have one food on a desert island, what would it be? You could <laughs> no. ask her that, too. <laughs> no, the, it's, a, it's a great question. And she's someone who's, who's you know, been cooking and for a long time and at impressive career. So um, I look forward to hearing how she answers that. Okay, great. And that's the show. Yay, we did it. We did do it. Thank you so much. I, as I said, I'm a big fan and I'm glad I've gotten to know you better over these years, ironically. It's yes. like not in New York or Atlanta. It's always somewhere else and I'm going to see you in Philly soon. So looking forward to that and just congratulations on everything. Well, and congratulations to you. I'm so glad that you are out there doing this show and thanks again for asking me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. So I will see you soon. Okay, bye. Bye, thank you. 
My guest today has been Kim Severson. She's the national food correspondent for the New York Times. You can follow her at Kim Severson, at NYT Cooking on Instagram, and at NYT Food on Twitter. And their website is, of course, nytimes.com. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. Website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Matt, and thanks again to Kim. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another live show. I hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.